let me just fiddle with technology. Is that working? Yes, good. Um, the good news is, I've, I've kind of been disciplining myself not to say this until I actually know it's true, but I, I trust Colin's expertise so much that we are very nearly there where we can download the talks onto the website and you can upload them from the website so that by Sunday lunch, if you're having trouble sleeping, then um, I can assist you over an afternoon's is. Speaking of which, I came across this the other day. What is a senior citizen? Uh, and uh, I thought I'd read this to you. Uh, we senior citizens thought that time-sharing meant togetherness, not holiday homes. That a chip meant a small piece of wood. That hardware meant nuts and bolts. And software wasn't even a word. We thought cleavage was something that butchers did. A stud was something that fastened a collar to a shirt. And going all the way meant staying on the bus all the way to the depot. (laughs) To us, fast food was what you ate in Lent. A Big Mac was an oversized raincoat. And crumpet was what you had for tea. Grass was mown. Pot was something you cooked in. And coke was kept in the coal house. A joint was cooked on Sundays. And in reading that, I suddenly realised I'm a senior citizen. (laughs) We better pray. Father, we are uh, we love just being in your presence and learning more about you. And we ask that as we study these scriptures today and others too, that you would instruct us, draw us into closer relationship with you. Equip us through your word and by your spirit, as Judith prayed, to live and work to your praise and glory. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Now, if you're uh, visiting here or relatively new, or perhaps you've been away the last few weeks, then uh, you may not have had a chance to catch up with the fact that we're teaching our way through the creed. This uh, creedal statement, you have it written on your order of service there. And week by week, we kind of trot it out. But what do we mean? when we talk about believing. Believing not in a kind of intellectual sense, as if, well, you know, that that may or may not be true, I'll take it or leave it, but believing as in actually basing the whole of my life, trusting my life, uh, my decisions, my thoughts, my actions and reactions, my hopes and plans, my dreams, will all be centred around and orbit around these creedal statements. So we thought it best to kind of um, take them out one at a time and um, dust them down. What do Christians, what have Christians traditionally understood by them? What do we understand by them? And so we've looked at God the Father. We've looked in quite a bit of detail at Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. We come to the third person of the Trinity this morning. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And beguilingly, there's, there's only that one phrase. So much that we could say about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so this inside-out course, this Lent course that we've been running alongside the Sunday series, uh, we've had three of them. There are two more to go, one coming this Wednesday and then the following Wednesday. Even if you haven't been to the first three, please do come to this Wednesday, 7.30 here in the church. I want to flesh out a little bit more about what the Bible teaches and what the church and Christians have traditionally understood by the Holy Spirit. Um, God... God as father, father figure, I mean, whether we have good or bad images of that, we can, we can kind of picture God as a father, even if it's the kind of caricatured picture of an old man with a great big beard. At least says, you know, we can kind of begin to allow our thoughts and imaginations to coalesce 
around God the Father. And God the Son, well, we know Jesus Christ. Don't we? He was human and he looked a bit like Robert Powell in the film. And so we can kind of picture him. He had blue eyes, blonde hair. I don't think he did. He was a Jew. Um, so it's very unlikely he did. But nevertheless, there have been attempts to, to picture him. We can kind of go with that. But God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. I mean... Where do you begin to get a handle on him? And I say him because the Bible and the New Testament writers and Christians down the ages have clearly understood the Holy Spirit in personal terms. Uh, I I speak from time to time with people who who talk of the Holy Spirit as it, uh, um, like it was a sort of force or some kind of impersonal element to the Christian faith. And I understand where the confusion creeps in. Um, because if we see the Holy Spirit as a title, um, maybe the definite article puts us off, and uh, it's the Holy Spirit, we kind of think it's an object or a thing. But um, if we see it as a title, then I think that helps us. The Queen, or the Prime Minister, or the Vicar. We're thinking, aren't we, of a person behind that title. We can immediately imagine a person. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, He commands us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And I put it to you that it's not possible to grieve an impersonal ideology or a statement of facts. It's only possible to grieve a person. And Paul, in that letter in the New Testament church, clearly understood the Spirit in personal terms. And look with me, chapter 14 and verse 18. Jesus speaking to his disciples. Uh, in verse 16 he said I'll ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you to be with you forever the spirit of truth and verse 18 I Jesus I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you and he's clearly referring there within the context to the spirit the Holy Spirit and yet it's it's I Jesus who will come through the spirit so that through the spirit we understand the sort of knowledge and experience the personal experience of Jesus Christ himself So the Spirit's personal, as opposed to um, the Star Wars force, be with you, this kind of impersonal, unknown power. This is someone who we can imagine. Jesus with us forever in spirit form. And he's a deity. Um, The Nicene Creed fleshes out a little bit more of what we might believe um, when it comes to the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. The Holy Spirit, who is he? He's the personal presence of God in our lives. He's the personal presence of God in our lives. I've come across teaching and and, um, people who tend to emphasise the fact that the Holy Spirit is there to throw light, if you like, to shed light on the person of Jesus. And I remember having quite a discussion with someone in uh, my theological college because he wanted to um, graciously and gently insist that that's all the Spirit really did. He was like a torch or a great big lamp. And um, the lamp shone on Jesus and enabled us to see Jesus and see who he really was and really is. And that actually is a, it's a wonderful way of describing the Spirit, but it's not the only way that we might describe the Spirit. For example, here, it seems to me in Jesus' teaching, Jesus is 
throwing light on the Spirit. Jesus is wanting us to understand who he, the Spirit, is. And we'll come on to show ways in which he qualifies what he says and how he teaches us. The thing about um, the Spirit as a, as a, a light, and, and indeed the thing about a lot of the New Testament um, metaphors for the Spirit, wind or fire or water, is that all of them are impersonal objects. I don't have a relationship with wind. Or, well, I have personal issues sometimes, but that's another story. Or water, or fire. I, I, don't, I, don't, have, I don't have a fire as my best friend, or as someone I can know personally and develop a relationship with. And, and so they fall short, this idea of a kind of just this, this light as a functionary, I think falls short of fully describing the third person of the Trinity. Now, for sure, there is an economy. There is an economy within the Trinity. God the Father sends the Son. And here the Son commissions the Spirit. So there is, if you like, an order, an economy. But an economy is not the same as essence. And in essence, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are exactly the same. They are, it's one person in three. Interesting, when Jesus commissions the disciples to go, right at the end of Matthew 28, and he says, uh, go and baptize them in my name, singular. Baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's clear that this, the personal element of the Holy Spirit is one and the same as the Father and the Son. Now let's look at what uh, Jesus says specifically in this passage. Chapter 14 and verse 16, right at the bottom of the page. Uh, Verse 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Another advocate. And the word advocate there in the original Greek language is this word parakletos. Parakletos, it's made up of two words, a compound word, para meaning, meaning alongside and so we have um, the parachurch or paramilitary. These are organizations that work alongside the church or the military. So para is alongside. And kletos comes from the, the Greek verb kaleo, to call, or I call. And so literally parakletos is one who is called to be alongside. That's how Jesus describes the spirit. One who is called to be alongside us, to help us, to be with us forever. Verse 16. And the word just in front of that, another advocate, another one called to be alongside. There are various words in the Greek for another. But the word used here emphasises another of the same kind. Exactly the same. This person called to be alongside you forever, to help you, is exactly the same kind as, well, by inference, Jesus. And it's interesting, John's letter, 1 John chapter 2 He writes of Jesus as being the parakletos. It's in the NIV, I don't know if it's there, Um, we'll get it up in a minute. Uh, uh, If uh, if any of us have sinned, John writes, then we have an advocate in the traditional language or one who speaks in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now the one, that phrase, um, who speaks in our defence, is this word parakletos. And he's, uh, he's uh, exactly the same as us. 
He's one who... Um, sorry, it's not, not the paracletos, sorry, it's the word for another. He, he's, he's exactly the same as the Spirit. As Jesus is our advocate, so the Spirit is our advocate. And we see them both doing the same task for us. Representing us to the Father. If you like this uh, idea of an advocate or someone who speaks in our defence... Um, it's fairly sort of legal overtones. It, it, it's a little bit like having a defence lawyer. You imagine if you're in court and you have a defence lawyer, you are reliant on him or her. They will represent you to the jury and to the judge. They will speak on your behalf. You, you will need them as they represent the legal service to you and your case to the courtroom. And the Holy Spirit is our defence lawyer, if you like, our defence advocate. Some of you may be familiar with um, a different translation to the word advocate there. In, in, in traditional translations, uh, parakletos was described, or translated rather as comforter. So Jesus will send another, exactly the same kind, comforter. And it's interesting just to look at the, the history of that word. It, uh, it's drawn from the Latin, con fortes. Fortes is Latin for strength. And con is with. So this is someone who will supply you or give you strength, provide you strength. And all of these ideas, this defense lawyer, this advocate, this uh, another exactly the same as Jesus, to, to give us strength, to encourage us. Really, if we bundle them together, this is who the Holy Spirit is. He's ever present in our lives. He's the exact representation of Jesus. It's, it's our experienced reality today of the historical person of Jesus who encourages us and strengthens us and speaks on our behalf. This is what the Bible and the Christian church, through the creeds, have understood the Holy Spirit to be. Now what does he do? What does the Holy Spirit do if he is our ever-present um, uh, guide and encourager? God in spirit form, then what does he do? Well, Jesus describes him in verse 17... As the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of truth. And just look across the page at chapter 16 and verse 8. More teaching from Jesus on the spirit here. Um, just halfway through verse 7 of chapter 16. Unless, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. He will convict the world of sin. That's because he's the spirit of truth. And as he begins to live and percolate in the lives of believers and in the life of the church, he will want to establish the truth about God and to begin to push away the clutter and the wrongdoing that is evil and untruth, lies and deception. In my own experience, that is what's um, most, in the most real sense, uh, comes to be the experience of, spirit, of the Spirit in my life. It's in those moments when I allow myself to be quiet enough and still enough to genuinely, as it were, hear and experience God afresh. It may have come through the reading of some scripture. It may have come through either the singing or, or meditating of a song or listening to a song. And I become aware, in a sense, afresh, of the reality of God. And it's then that I feel the, the razor-sharp 
edge of the spirit in my life. And usually, usually it's concerning some form of conviction. Usually I find that the spirit is wanting to show me a specific area where I've, I've gone wrong. I've either been in neglect. I, I've just, it's a sin of neglect if you like. There's, there's something that I should have done that I haven't. Or I've been doing that I shouldn't have done. That I've just allowed to happen. Rather like barnacles encrust the hull of a boat. And the Spirit will come in in a very specific way. There's no sort of blanket condemnation. You're useless. You look at you failure. It's not a blanket thing. It's specific. That person at that time, you wronged them in this way. And you need to go and say sorry. Or here's an activity that you left undone and it's had this impact or this effect on someone else. And you know, as I allow myself slightly painfully to dwell on that, it becomes the picture or the reality, the image of what the Spirit is wanting to show me becomes crystal clear. Particularly as I ask him to make it clear. Lord, what have I done? Show me. How do you want me to act now? And as I pray those simple stuttering prayers, the reality of the presence of God is, is so tangible in my life. I wonder if that's your experience. I know the caricature sometimes of, of spirit-filled Christians is, is of a sort of, a, a kind of the, the phrase is happy clappy, this kind of um, triumphalistic, sort of everything joyful, everything wonderful. I tell you, I've had those experiences when God just seems so real. I, actually, I have to say, the opening hymn this morning, I thought, wow, you know, how great thou art. I wanted to sing that. I wanted to join with all of you. Yes. And, and those are wonderful sort of euphoric moments. But actually, I have to say, often it's, it's the conviction of sin that the Spirit brings that, that testifies to me of just how genuine and real God is. It's the, the now experience of what God has done in bringing me into his presence. And that's because he's the Spirit of truth. He doesn't want falsehood in my life or in yours. And he'll work to begin to challenge it and drive it out. The world cannot accept him, Jesus says, because uh, it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And linked to that is this idea that he's the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, he's the advocate or the spirit of truth, verse 17. He's the Holy Spirit, verse 26. So what else will he do? Well, he will want to... He will want to bring the life of God into our lives. And so as we welcome him, as we say, Lord Spirit, come into, as it were, the house of my life. And and please, bring about your spring cleaning. Go into the attic, go to the cellar. Please come into every room and clean and refresh and restore. What's that like? Well, um, before I got married, I was going out with Joe, and uh, I had a flat, a little flat to myself, it was great. Um, nice, little cosy little pad, little bachelor pad, and um, I loved it. And I thought, um, uh, uh, Jo used to come and visit, of course, she was sort of with me, but she didn't live in the house, of course, until we got married uh, in the flat. But then we got married, and just before we got married, I thought, well, I'll prepare, you know, I'll just sort of make ready. So I had this wardrobe with my clothes, and I, I just sort of shoved along a bit <laughs> That's plenty of space. And I just checked the sort of cupboards, uh, the drawers. I mean, I was, you know, there was, I, I kind of bundled a few things up. So there was an empty drawer for Joe. I thought that'd be plenty. Um, and, uh, and Joe moved in. Oh boy. <laughs> I remember coming back from, I was teaching at the time. I came back from school one day. And um, there by the front door, there were two big black bin bags. 
And I was like, I wonder what's in there. I had a little sort of rummage around it, and there's one of my favourite jumpers that I'd had since I was about 13, I think. I was just really fond of it. And there it was in this bin bag. And I thought, surely Joe can't mean that to go with the rubbish. But yes, Joe had, had moved in, and she was beginning to graciously and gently and lovingly um, make her mark on, on the house. If you came round, it would have been obvious to you that there'd been a change in the occupancy of the house. Something had changed. There were one or two flowers now in vases around about the place and surfaces were a little bit clean. There wasn't this sort of beautiful sort of Babel-esque pile of washing up um, next to the sink. Um, just waiting until there wasn't a single plate left before we finally tackle that. You know, things were kind of in order. There was a fragrance about the house. Um, Joe had come and moved in and it was obvious in some way. And the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says, he will be with you and he will be in you. He'll be living in the house of your life. The Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit, bringing the presence of Jesus. It's bound to make a difference, isn't it? As we ask him to, as we invite him to. What else will he do? He'll teach us. Look at verse 26. The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. He'll teach us how he does that, is as we, with the Spirit in us, engage with the Spirit-inspired Word of God. Paul writes, all scripture is God-inspired, inspired by the Spirit, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So as the Spirit in us engages with the Spirit-inspired Word of the text, God's life is energised in us. And many of you, I know, will have had that experience of, of reading the words on this page. And it's almost as if, maybe in your own quiet time or perhaps during a sermon or a house group, it's almost as if the words have kind of, you know, enlarged on the page. There's just a phrase or a word that has become so real to you as its meaning or its impact or its implication is amplified in your life. That's the Spirit teaching And he will remind you, verse 26, of everything I've said to you. Uh, I know one or two people who think, great, the Spirit will remind me of everything that Jesus has said, so I don't need to study, I don't need to read, I don't need to uh, get maybe some Bible notes alongside my Bible reading so that I can understand and study the Word better. Because the Spirit will do all that. I can just sort of sit back and allow him to do his work. Let me just make this point about being reminded of something, which is what the Spirit does you cannot be reminded of what you never already knew. So this isn't a replacement activity for study. We need to set aside time on a regular basis to feed on God's word, to store in our hearts and in our minds what God has said through scripture. And then the spirit, on occasion, will take what is stored there and remind us opportune moments, maybe when we're in a, a pastoral conversation perhaps, or we're in a tricky situation at work. Lord, how am I to be a, a man or a woman of peace in this situation? Give me the words to say. Give me something that will unlock a, a tense or tricky situation. And the Spirit will bring to mind, will remind us of what Jesus has taught us. Finally, let me finish with the Holy Spirit as enabler. If he's the Spirit of truth, he's the Holy Spirit. He teaches 
he reminds, he's also the enabler. Let me just come back to this um, rather stark phrase in verse 15, the start of our reading. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. I look down again at verse 23. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Let's pause there a moment and just reflect on those words. If you love me, keep my commands. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And here we go again. Just another opportunity for me to fall short. Because all of us, I'm sure, in our, in our finest moments, we'd say, I, I love God. I, I, want to, I want to be one of those, counted as one of those who loves God and who follows him and who serves him. But have I always kept his commands? Have I always obeyed his teaching? No, I haven't. I, I, I fall short. I let him down in the way in which I live and act. How can the Holy Spirit help me? How can I keep his commands and obey his teaching? And here I think the key is to recognize that nearly always in Scripture, do a little test if you like on familiar passages that you know, nearly always in Scripture where there's a command, an imperative to do something, it's followed by God with a promise or it's surrounded with a promise. Let's test it out here in these two. Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. Keep my commands, I promise I'll send someone to help you. Look at verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, implicit command. Now look, my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. We'll live with you. You need to clear up your house, we'll be there doing a bit of the housework as well. We'll help you, encourage you, inspire you. <coughs> Command and promise. Matthew 28, 20, we had it earlier. Go into all the world and truly I will be with you always to the end of the age. Command and promise. This is the fulfilment of the prophecy in Ezekiel. I don't know if we've got that one, if we can grab those two verses there. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied, foretold, that God was going to create a new covenant and the Spirit would be the one who would initiate the covenant. Not an external covenant of, of laws written on tablets of stone, but an internal covenant. I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow your, my decrees. I will move your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's the, it's the next one there. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see where? There's the promise. The command is to, to, to obey the teaching, to keep the laws. And the promise is the spirit as gift, as endowment, as grace to help and inspire and encourage you in that intention to live God's way. The promise is fulfilled. If you like, the spirit comes and fills us full. That's what it means to be fulfilled, to be filled full of the Spirit so that our lives are transformed. What once was seen as a duty now becomes a devotion, a joy. The story is told of a prisoner who um, was serving a long prison sentence for various crimes and misdemeanors and uh, feeling the full weight of, of guilt and conviction, he saw this plaque on the wall and, and the, the plaque had the Ten Commandments written out. And he saw, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. And he just felt even worse. But in his time in prison, he went along to a Christian meeting run by the prison chaplain. 
And there they had speakers who came in and explained something of the Christian gospel, of how it was that the Spirit had come to birth new life and to give new life, to empower new life as individuals put their trust in what Jesus had done on the cross. And as this prisoner did that and uh, asked for forgiveness as he confessed his sins and received God's forgiveness and new life by the Spirit, he began to live life differently. God came to live with him in his house to begin to clear out the clutter. And he, used to, he began to see the world differently. And one day as he was walking past the wall, he looked at the commandments. And he suddenly realized these weren't commands to press him down. These, by the help of the Spirit, were promises to lift him up. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. The promises, uh, the commands had turned into promises. The Spirit had begun the transforming work in his life. How? I want to finish just by asking, how is this real for each and every one of us? And on the inside out, of course, I had this uh, picture of the surfer. I hope we can get that first picture up. Um, Surfing is basically allowing the power of the wave to transport you. You can actually go some way on a surfboard on your own. You can flail with your arms and kick with your legs and you'll sort of pootle along. But I tell you what, it's so much more fulfilling. It's what surfing's all about if you allow yourself to be caught by the power of the wave. Let the power of the wave take you and surf you into the beach. I remember teaching uh, the kids to, to, to bodyboard. And there is that moment of fear. There's a moment when actually they say, oh, no, I just want to sort of paddle in the, in the shallows where it's safe. But they're drawn by the whoops and the cries of joy of some of the older children all around who are clearly loving being just taken into the, into the beach on a great wave. And, and, and in the end, this, this gets the better of them. Daddy, can you help me? And so we put them on the board and we kind of line them up and we wait for a wave. And you can see... They're sort of, there's, a, there's, a, there's a look of fear in their eyes. You, what happens if I fall off? What happens if the wave's too big? And, and, and you, you kind of get them, teach them to, to feel the catch. You, know, you kind of whoosh them along until the wave kind of catches the board. And there's that, there's that moment of sheer panic when they can feel their own strength being overtaken by the power of the wave. And, and they, they sort of look up, you know, what's happening next? But it's momentary. It's momentary because the next thing is just a face wreathed in smiles as, hey, it's okay, and this is fun. And woof, you're launching, weaving in and out of all the holidaymakers onto the beach. Cries of joy, shrieks and delight. We can't get them out of the sea now. Because they've allowed themselves to be overtaken by the power of the wave. A friend of mine was um, a, a bass singer and he was new to a choir. And he was struggling to find the kind of notes and the pitch um, with all these other experienced singers around him. He was fairly new to it. And one experienced big, big sort of bass singer could tell this from the body language of the guy. And afterwards he said, you know, were you okay in the choir practice? He said, well, to be honest, I was struggling a little bit with the notes and I didn't quite feel where I was. Uh, I'm not quite sure I can do this singing. And the big bass singer said, I tell you what, next week when we come, stand right in front of me. I'll be in the row behind, you stand in front of me. And when we start to sing, and it comes to the time for our part, what I want you to do is to lean back so that your back is resting on my chest and then just sing. 
And the guy thought, well, this is a little bit odd, but okay. <laughs> we'll give it a go. And so when it came to the choir practice next week, that's, that's what he did. He just gently leant back into this great, big, rotund bass singer. And the bass singer, who uh, was really experienced, had a lovely voice, and he, used to, he boomed out his part in the piece that they were singing. And his whole body was resonating with the notes, such that the, the, the sort of vibration of the note went through the bassist singer and through into the body of the guy who was leaning on him. He was, if you like, overwhelmed with the sound and the note, such that it was all he could do to prevent himself from singing out in exactly the same way. And the invitation for us is to recognize that God has come to us in Jesus and has commissioned his spirit to, if you like, sing around us. And we are to, we're called to lean back into him and to allow the voice of the spirit, as it were, the voice of God, the voice of Jesus, to sing through us, to speak through us, to live through us. We lean on him and rely on him to empower and inspire us. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says. I will come to you. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to give us an opportunity now as we come to sing our final hymn, in a sense to do that, um, to lean back on God. I'd love you to to focus on God the Father who sent sent the Son and commissioned the Spirit to live with us, to be in us so that we might sing and live and act to his praise and glory. Breathe on me, breath of God. Uh, We'll sing this as our offertory hymn. Um, It's an opportunity to give to the life and work of the church in financial means. Um, If you're a visitor or newcomer here, please don't feel obliged to give. But uh, when the offering bag comes around, if you're a regular here and you'd like to give, then please do. Let's stand and sing this final hymn together.